You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello, hello. Happy Wednesday, everyone. And before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to ask you, my listeners, to help support the podcast by rating the podcast on iTunes by giving it five stars. I know I say this last week, and I'll probably say it every week going forward just to remind my fabulous listeners, you guys, um, and also new people that tune in. Um, giving the podcast a five-star rating on iTunes will help, help a lot. Uh, in getting the podcast ri- to rise in rankings and really it, it, ju- it just increases its outreach so it can help out more young professionals and help people just gain a broader perspective on their career journeys. So please leave a nice five-star review on iTunes and if you leave a review, um, I'll read it and I'll try to give you a shout out in a future episode. So yeah, please go ahead and do that. And so for today's episode, uh, it's more like a welcome back because this is a second part of a two-part series of my interview with Greg Duggan. Um, if you missed the first part, then I advise you start from there and then come back to this episode. Uh, but if you listen to it just as a refresher, uh, Greg's the vice president at Align Invest Management Corporation, where he is in the private equity investing arm. And he was previously at Onyx graduated from Harvard Business School with an MBA and so yeah he's very well decorated in the finance brand names and so in the second part of the interview we dive deeper into the actual uh, private equity process and what Greg actually does every day and we also talk about mistakes he made in university the mindset shift from undergrad to his MBA um, we would dig further into the value of the MBA um, more so than we did in part one. And yeah, we talk about all the various aspects of uh, what makes his career, his thought process and more. So yeah, I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg. And so yeah, take a listen. Hey folks, so this is something unusual, I, this is the first time I've done it, but um, this is a part two with Mr. Greg Duggan. Hey Greg, thanks, thanks for coming back on for a second time. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, um, part one was three weeks ago, and you know, I, I kept on saying, I think near the end constantly, we gotta do a part two, we gotta do a part two, because I just had more questions that I just wanted to ask you, so yeah, finally got you on for part two. Um, and so this is new for me as well, so I wasn't sure how, how I was going to start this. But given what I know about you, I wanted to just start off by asking you about, um, you know, are you still vegan right now? I am. Uh, it's, been, it's been a while, actually. Probably uh, beginning of 2015. Mm. Um, so it'll almost be four years uh, soon. And uh, it's been great. I mean, I think, I think uh, I, I'm not an ethical vegan. Um, so I, I will still wear leather shoes and leather belts and uh, people often point out the irony of that. Um, I do it for health reasons and, and um, so I think, I think one was uh, I had a whole bunch of stomach issues, so like digestive issues and ever since doing uh, or you know, adopting a vegan diet, um, it's been 
night and day. Uh, and so, so, you know, while, uh, as you know, since we met, uh, as we said in the last podcast at, at the gym, um, you know, I think I was always focused on getting a lot of protein. So certainly that's, that's harder now. Um, uh, and I've lost weight and I'm probably not as strong, but it's tough to put a price on feeling good. Um, and so I've, I've kept doing it. It hasn't, uh, it hasn't been hard. I think, uh, I like to think that I was an early adopter of, of a trend that is continuing to grow in, in you know, major metropolitan cities across North America, but it, it's actually becoming a lot easier um, to you know, be vegan kind of all the time, right? So going out to restaurants used to be very challenging, but now most places have you know, some vegetarian or vegan option. And in fact, there are some restaurants you know, that are only vegan or vegetarian. Um, uh, and so, yeah, still, still doing it. Damn. No, that's, uh, that's very impressive. I think, yeah, when you first told me, yeah, you're definitely closer to the early adopter trend, especially in the uh, professional services world. Um, at that point, I had no friends in finance or any kind of um, job that did vegan. I think, you know, most of the time we'd make fun of it for that. Obviously, you know, in a joking way, I don't want to rile up anyone here. <laughs> Since then, I've, I've had a few vegan coworkers too. Yeah. Um, weirdly enough, they were all from New Zealand. Hmm. So I, don't, I wouldn't be able to comment on that. Yeah, but um, yeah, that, I think the entire office is trying to find a trend there. With if you're from New Zealand, are you more likely to be vegan or something? Um, but no, that's that's amazing. I I ask because um, you've been on the vegan diet for four years, but I've been on intermittent fasting for four months. Mm. So um, that's my foray. Well, I do that too. Oh, you so do that I, on I, top I do, of it. I do a I do a one two combo. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, I think it gets it gets a little harder once in a while. I think the, the the biggest challenge I have with with my diet is when I have to do things for work. So you know, whether it's uh, a meeting with a management team or you know a client meeting, um, you, it's often hard to dictate where you go. Yeah. Uh, in many instances, but yeah, I, if if I have the choice, I'll do that too. So I'll have like a small window usually in the evenings to eat, and it's usually vegan food. So biggest challenge I have is keeping weight on actually. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm. Um, yeah, you, you've definitely gone way leaner, mm-hmm. I, I, I got I to say, but it's, it's a good lean. It doesn't look like... I remember when you got lean by going into private equity, you, you looked very kind of sickly. <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, you're already quite pale, but I think you got paler. You're not selling the job. <laughs> hey, I think people got to be aware of what they're getting into sometimes. It's um, true. But... Yeah, no, I, like, so far I've loved fasting. Like, it's just such an efficient system. Mm. I just love it. It's where it's just, um, oh, I can eat after this time. Cool. All right. One decision now. Exactly. I, I don't have to think about it. Um, and in the last, in our last uh, chat, near the end, something that really struck me where I wanted to have you back on was the advice that you said you'd give to your 20-year-old 20, 20 self was um, to not have such a singular focus mm. on life and you felt that was something you kind of it was like a fault that you had mm-hmm. and i wanted to ask you to kind of expand on that yeah I, so uh i want to make sure that i i recall what i said and i think what i said and i may actually be misremembering is is i had a very singular focus when i was for example in college or at school mm-hmm. yeah you um, did refer to your 20s yeah. right and so and so i think that very singular focus was on academics and career mm. and um 
you know, I, I think it is, uh, or it, it, it was a conscious choice at the time. Uh, and, and I think in hindsight, the, the regret I'm expressing is one of just not exploring other things, right? I think um, uh, in my case, I could have done just as well you know, at the at, in terms of an outcome, whether that's academic or career-wise, uh, but perhaps not sacrificed as much of on the on the social or personal side, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I remember being at Queens, and I still think about it. Uh, I still think about it today. I don't think that there's ever been a time, uh, either professionally or academically, that I worked harder than my four years there. Uh, I mean, I, I I think my my first year. Maybe not as much because I was still figuring things out, uh, but certainly kind of my second through, through fourth years, I just I was constantly uh, working uh, or studying, um, and and I did almost nothing else. Uh, so you know I think my 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 days, um, you know, would obviously include you know I'd get up at a reasonable hour, um, I would I would read you know, school materials, not even, not even anything outside of academics. I would go to class, I would do more work and study and practice and, you know, do all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, maybe go to the gym and then keep working. Um, and that was, that happened for, you know, call it over a thousand days, right? Like over, over three years of just doing that day in, day out. Um, and I think, uh, on the one hand, obviously, you know, if you do that, you have a positive outcome because uh, you're working so hard from an academic perspective. But the flip side is, you know, I can't think of um, really deep, meaningful relationships uh, that I that I built when I was uh, in college, in undergrad. Um, and, you know, I still have friends and, and acquaintances, but really I, I wouldn't consider them, you know, super close bonds. Uh, and I contrast that to my time when I was in Boston um, where, you know, I actively made the opposite choice given my past experience, uh, and I I actually found that much more rewarding. Now, you know, I think I think it's a different situation, and so it's easier to forego academic success at business school than it is in undergrad for many reasons, which I'm I'm happy to get into. But um, uh, I ended up, you know, having a much more positive. Uh, uh, in hindsight, having a much more positive outlook on my experience when I focused less on on the academic side and more on the, you know, interpersonal and personal side. Mm-hmm. Was there was there a kind of specific time or kind of instance that made you really kind of rec- recollect that and think, hmm, maybe uh, I should have uh, invested more in the social part, less in the academics. Well, not really. I mean, I think I think part of it was. Part of it was just you know general introspection. Yeah. Um, part of it was thinking about, and, and this goes back. Actually, I don't know if we talked about this, but I've talked about this many times. So you know things are <laughs> melding melding together. But but you know the the concept that you know as one progresses through their career, um, it is far less the technical, you know, academic components that differentiate you it, it's much more about the relationships um, and so you know it, it's kind of like what I built uh, you know what I built when I was in college like the the technical foundation and the academic foundation is is um, necessary but insufficient right and so 
uh, if you you can have the best technical foundation in the world, but it will always be insufficient, and it's kind of the you know the other things that begin to matter more and more. And so I think you know maybe it was thinking about thinking about that, and um, you know I think we talked about you know business school is about a, a network. I think you know anytime you're in an environment with a whole bunch of peers, I mean it is always about you know building those relationships. Um, and so I, I certainly didn't do that. I feel. And in terms of the business school aspect, uh, you did focus more on building up the network and the social side. Um, and how much of it was kind of the environment where, you know, you're in an environment where everyone wants to do a lot of that and they have a focus upon the network? And how much was it where, I, from my understanding, is marks are not that important in business school? You can, some people just skip all their classes and some are just pass-fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, that's a good question, and I, I I will answer it. But I also want to say, like I'm I'm by nature, uh, I think, uh, an introvert, and and I, I I don't enjoy social settings particularly, which makes you know the exercise of, of building a social network that much more difficult. Um, and so, yes, uh, I think it's all relative, right? Like the what I'm talking about is all relative. So my my experience of business school on a relative basis was much more about, you know, social networks and, and building those as well as, you know, personal reflection um, and, and far less academic. But by no means was I a social butterfly. Um, and and so to your to your point, I, I do think it, uh, the environment is far more conducive to, um, uh, you know, that type of uh, focus. Because as you said, you know, the grades are not that relevant. Um, I think a large part because they're no longer the sole proxy on which people outside of that environment will gauge you on, right? So I think when you're coming out of undergrad and you're thinking about trying to get a job, there's only one measure that people can really look at initially, right, before you have summer experience to gauge if you are a competent, you know, potential employee. Uh, I think when you're at business school, that is far less relevant. Um, and, and so one is one is that aspect uh, the fact that grades are less important one is just a structural system that they have to you know drive those networks um i think i think there's a large emphasis on socializing and and being together uh and the other one is an active choice and so i think that combination kind of you know allowed me to do more of that than i had done previously mm. and how like how is, how has that uh, network formation been like afterwards like um, is there like a, did you build out a group of like your own mastermind friends who you constantly keep in contact with or is it more like Harvard's really helping you guys out by constantly hosting these uh, I don't know get together sessions or something with uh, all the alumni in Toronto let's meet up uh, so uh, it, it is a bit of both yeah um, uh, but the on the on the first question uh, I am always surprised by how few lasting relationships uh, you come out of these programs with, right? Uh, so I think at Queens it was it was I could count them on, you know, one hand. Maybe out of HBS I can count them on two. Despite the fact that I had tried so much, I think the challenge is everybody gets so busy. And um, with with HBS, um, the, the the challenge is, you know, Toronto is not a nexus for folks to come back to. Yeah. Uh, I think if I had been in New York or San Francisco. Um, there are far more alumni in your class that go there, and I look at my peers who I was very close to when I was in school, um, 
and, and certainly they seem much more active in terms of that core group of friends. It seems to be much larger simply because there are more people. Mm. That doesn't mean that I don't have that core group of friends that you're talking about and we stay in touch with on a regular basis, right? So, you know, daily or, or weekly um, and talk about, you know, anything really. Right. Uh, uh, and I, I do think, to, to your second question, or, or point rather, um, uh, there is a very large alumni base. Uh, and so, you know, whether that's a holiday party or a summer party or, you know, other events throughout the year, um, you do tend to see the same faces over and over again, which helps solidify, you know, kind of those connections. Um, and so I feel like that is much more kind of in the genre of traditional networking, um, whereas the, the former is much more, you know, close social bonds. And so... Uh, I think uh, there there are uh, maybe one or two or three close social bonds directly in Toronto, and then I would say you know kind of multiples of that that I still keep in touch with uh, who are you know around the world. Mm. And in the last uh, podcast, you talked about how uh, you did this whole kind of road trip throughout the states and stuff. Was that the how much of a role did that play in you? choosing not to stay in the States and come back to Toronto. Like you mentioned, it's a small network here. And you went to go back into field and finance where the market is smaller. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so from that perspective, you could have stayed in the States. Like you graduated from Harvard and a lot of people would think that if I want to work in the States, doing a US MBA would probably be a great way to segue into that. It certainly is. Um, it is one way, although I, I, I think it is getting a lot harder now given yeah. where immigration policies are trending. Um, but uh, I am, as you know, irrationally patriotic. Um, and uh, and I like Canada. You know, I was born in Canada. I want to stay in Canada. I want to have a family in Canada. Um, and, and somewhere I, I don't, I don't love the idea of, you know, taking what uh, I feel very fortunate to have gotten from, you know, from Canada and this country and then going and exporting that in the States, primarily for economic reasons, right? And so so I, I knew I wanted to come back to Toronto. Um, I'd love to have been able to go back to Vancouver, um, but I, th- I don't think that's possible, at least not yet. Um, it might be in the cards later. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it was less about not wanting to be in the States, it was more about wanting to come back to Canada, to mm-hmm. answer your, your question. Though I will say, um, and, and this isn't uh, a, a, a political podcast in any way, there, there are just, I, I personally um, uh, believe in our system much more than, than theirs on, on many different levels. Um, uh, and so, so I think it was actually a very easy choice in hindsight. Mm. No, that's, uh, that's good. You, you knew what you wanted and you kind of stuck to it. Right. Yeah, like, I every time I travel, I constantly try to assess whether I want to live in that city. Like, I try to go in with the mindset of, what would I do if I lived here? And so, like, I was look up housing prices, <laughs> cost of living, everything. And, yeah, like, I've, I've been in a lot of places in the States, but it just makes me realize more of how much, like, how much of a good thing I got going. Right. Here. It's always, it's always, the test is always, you know, you'll fly somewhere, 
and 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 generally you can't judge a city by the airport because the airport is not located usually in very nice places. Right. You know, you go to the city, you check it out, and then the question is, when you come back here, how do you feel? You know, driving into Toronto, um, and I think that's exactly right. Like I would constantly come back here, and and uh, you know be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I it, it wasn't like like I said, it wasn't a hard choice. Yeah. Yeah. And we also talked about how um, when for, for young folks who are thinking of doing an MBA, certainly a lot of my friends are thinking of doing an MBA, and I think like yesterday I saw a Facebook status of someone saying, thinking of doing an MBA, what do you guys think? Um, and we talked about the importance of having purpose and, and intent and mm-hmm. why you want to do it. And trying to make it more broader, um, what, have you thought about what your kind of purpose is your kind of north star or like your why you know i i'd like to say that i have a really good crisp answer to that but i i, I don't um i don't i don't know uh with precision what it is i wanted to do i think uh i think if i recall our last conversation um part of my part of my equation was about optionality. Uh, and so my, my hope is, um, uh, my hope is that, you know, as I, as I keep progressing and keep learning and keep trying different things out, um, uh, I will still have that optionality as a result of doing what I've done in the past to go and, and actually execute on whatever that North Star ends up being. Mm. Um, uh, but I, I don't, I, I don't know that I would say that people have to have you know, a 40-year plan or a 30-year plan before making the decision to go to business school. Um, in many instances, I actually think it's just a fallacy to try and, and, and think out that far uh, because um, as much as you try to plan, I mean, you, you know, it's, a, it's a, that conversation about process versus outcome, right? You can have the best process possible, but the outcome will invariably be affected by randomness and luck. And so... You know, I, I think my, my decision was much more short-term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with um, it, just the need to be flexible mm-hmm. with everything. And it might be a Bezos quote where he talks about how you want to be stubborn in your vision but flexible in your strategy um, or your tactics. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with that. And even the vision itself, like I've constantly been having things switched um, and it's been a weird journey of constantly still trying to find an inkling of why I'm doing all these things, like why, why I'm doing a podcast, why um, I'm writing an essay every week mm-hmm. and all that. Have you ever asked yourself the question of like why you're doing... Oh, all the know? time. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you just try have to avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> why is the answer unsatisfactory? <laughs> No, it's just it's just sometimes there is no why. Sometimes it's okay to just enjoy what you're doing today. Yeah, yeah. Um, and move forward with it, right? Yeah. Uh, I do. I do. That's a half joking answer. I do think it's important to have you know some type of some type of plan, uh, some type of idea of what you want to accomplish. Um, but it doesn't have to be, you know. Again, going back to the long range planning. Um, uh, idea like it doesn't have to be you know five ten years out it can just be you know what do I want to accomplish this year or this month mm-hmm. or today mm-hmm. uh, and so 
I certainly ask myself why I do what I do, and then I very quickly come to the conclusion that it's because I like it. Simple. Right. Yeah, no. Uh, that's, that's also, I think, a very valid way of um, approaching the question, for mm-hmm. sure. And something I, I, I still am trying to wrap my head around, we're going to get a little more, I think, I don't, I don't really want to say technical, but um, I want to know exactly what the deal process is like when you actually go through a private equity deal. Like Ooh, pe- like changing always, gears. Yeah, people always talk about that. And some, some folks will mention, about, oh, there's, there's nothing like the amount of learning you get out of actually doing a deal. Mm-hmm. And it seems the life cycle of a private equity person is you have the non-deal phase and the deal phase. And when the deal phase goes on, then you know, that's when I might not see you for a long time. Um, but that's where all the excitement and the learning is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you really go for. Like that's your value add, right? Doing the deal, executing it, and winning that investment. Yeah. Uh, so, so if I were to break down, yeah. uh, if I were to break down, take me, take me to the first week. When, when yeah. do I know when a deal is beginning? Well, let's, let's step back because I think that's an interesting, that's an, there are effectively, you know, three phases, right? Okay. There's, there's a search slash sourcing phase. Right. There's a execution phase, and there's a post close management phase, right? And those are the th- I would say the three big buckets. And so, in the search slash sourcing phase, it it uh, it depends on the model you want to adopt. I think I think there are effectively two things you can do, and it it is a function also of which snack bracket in terms of deal size you are playing in. At you know at the very small end of the market you can have a good combination of proprietary and, and brokered slash auction um, sourcing processes. And so proprietary meaning, you know, you try and find a counterparty, an actual, you know, decision maker or seller who wants to engage with you and explore uh, selling their business to you. Um, so think, you know, a family run business for generations that is looking to, you know, get liquidity um, or to, you uh, you know, either either full or partial liquidity, um, or to bring somebody in that can you know execute on a vision that they simply can't do, frankly. And the other side, which is far more traditional, um, where where I sit, you know, even though every private equity firm in the world will tell you that they have proprietary sourcing, I I don't think there's a deal in today's market that doesn't get some type of market check outside of what you're doing. But anyways, that is you know that is where investment bankers come in. Um, uh, in all shapes and sizes, and so uh, it is where you know there will be an intermediary bank, there will be a sell side banker that is running a process, um, uh, and is looking to you know get bids from financial and strategic buyers uh, for for an asset, and effectively get the highest possible clearing price, right? And so some people have different strategies around how they approach that. Uh, that part of the world uh, and it also depends what types of funds you're investing out of I think for traditional private equity funds they would go and participate in an auction and see if they can you know prevail um, and there's an element of winner's curse there as well right which for references if you end up being the highest bidder for an asset that means you were willing to well if you end up buying a company it means that you were willing to be the highest bidder that other people couldn't get to and therefore 
underwrote the lowest return. And so then the question is, you know, do you have a differentiated angle that can help you actually generate something that other people couldn't see, right? And 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 or you can say, listen, we don't want to participate in traditional processes, and you know, we'll wait to see what doesn't clear the market, and then we'll go in after that. Uh, and so, you know, I think I keep talking about that sourcing phase for, for quite some time, but that is how you end up, uh, you know, with the initial question of, you know, here is a profile on a company, right? Here is a, uh, a SIM or a, a, you know, some type of, some type of, um, uh, some set of documents that allows you to have a first pass uh, as to what you think a business is worth, right? And so then you move into kind of the evaluation slash execution phase, which is, you know, what do you think you can pay for this business? And and you do that in a you know using all of the valuation techniques that you learn uh, by going to school or by being on the job. And you you know you have some type of hurdle rate that you're trying to hit, um, what whatever that may be. And you see if if the business pencils out. Um, and obviously, that sounds like a very quantitative. Uh, equation, but there's a lot of qualitative stuff in there about strategy and management um, and and growth opportunities and and, and things that um, things that ultimately inform the numbers, but that that aren't immediately apparent when you just look at an income statement or a balance sheet. Um, and so, you know, if 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 uh, so, let's assume a couple of things here. Let's assume one, we're a large private equity firm, and two, we're you know going through a traditional process, an auction process. So what will happen is you know you will get this. It's called a SIM. You'll get a SIM and a process letter from an investment bank. What does a SIM stand for? Confidentiality information memorandum. And uh, uh, so it's it's you know it's it's information about a private company that is not publicly available, which is what you are relying on to you know evaluate this business. And so. You will get a SIM and a process letter, and you know you will have a certain amount of time to put a first round bid in. You'll you may or may not have a chance to sit down with the management team beforehand for a quick conversation to get a sense of how they think about their business because there's obviously an information asymmetry between them and you as well as between the seller and you, and so you're trying to narrow that information asymmetry down as much as possible over time. And then you um, you know if you put a first round bid in, if you bid high enough effectively, you get into the next round and there are, you know, tactical considerations around how to bid in order to get access to more information. And then you go into the execution phase, right? Um, uh, and so you will hire consultants or you will, you know, hire accountants uh, and you will maybe even hire your own investment banker to help you uh, with diligence. Um, oh, okay. and, and so, you know, you'll do things like quality of earnings, legal due diligence, tax, um, and you'll think about structuring, uh, and and that's really where you get into the nitty gritty of a business and learn the ins and outs about effectively how it makes money. And so that's after you've already bid for the business, though. Typically. Yeah. Yeah. Typically, it typically you don't get access to all of that information, the data room, and a and a management presentation after the first round bid, though. Uh, it depends on how the sell side bank wants to run a process, and so you you know you you may have multiple bidding stages. So you know we just went through the first round, and then we go through this phase, and then there might be a refresh bid or kind of a you know bid number one point five kind of in there to make sure that people are still tracking towards what the sell side bank thinks this is worth. Um, and and so ultimately, if you if you make it through that, that will inform what you're willing to pay for the business, and so you may have to decrease your price um, 
uh, or you may think that you have incremental, you know, um, uh, firepower in reserve, so to speak, where you might be able to bid more depending on how the auction situation plays out. And so there's an element of, you know, fundamental value. There's also an element of tactics around how to bid for an asset. Um, and, and, you know, if you end up, if you end up bidding um, correctly, quote unquote, then, then, you know, you will prevail and you will be the, the, the bidder. And then it kind of folds in, sorry, the bidder, the winner. And then it, it folds into, you know, conformatory due diligence and kind of closing the deal. Um, <clears throat> and then once you own the business, um, you know, private equity is not about, for uh, in most cases, not about day-to-day -day operational management. Uh, and so uh, you will monitor that investment, but you will do that by sitting on the board. Uh, and in some cases, you'll have control. Uh, so you'll have bought, you know, 100% of the equity of the business. In some cases, you won't. And you might have a majority position. So, you know, anything above 51% where you control the board. And in some cases, you might be a minority uh, where you have significant influence, but where you don't control the board. Um, and so, you know, you might have three of seven board seats. And so uh, in, in that instance, if you want to enact change, it's a little bit harder, uh, but you can still do it uh, simply because you, you have enough board seats in, in the situation I described. Right. Most are buyouts though, right? I would say on average, uh, it seems like most times you at least have 50% control. It's, uh, it's well, so in, 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 you know, all the deals I've actually worked in, uh, there's been one of each. Uh, there's oh. been a full buyout. There's been kind of 50-50 ownership, and we've had a minority position. Um, uh, and so you do you do see. And also, I, I will say for for large scale LBOs, yes, it's typically uh, it's typically control. Mm. Um, uh, and for kind of more growth or venture, it's typically um, not control. Okay. And so from the high level, it seems that just like the first round of bidding where kind of shave off the low bidders and you have the serious people of the if there's 10 people that bid and then arbitrarily just picking a number the top five have a number that seems you know they're more serious and seem more likely to meet the price that the, the mm -hmm. sell side had set then you go into the execution and the due diligence phase to think of you know assessing did we make the right bid should it be higher etc and so there's other subsequent rounds of bidding eventually to find the winner correct um, which creates a fairly efficient market. Mm -hmm. And so in the beginning, though, you don't have much information to go off when you're bidding. You don't. Okay. Uh, you, have, you have to make decisions with imperfect information. Mm. Um, uh, but you do have quite a bit of information in, in a lot of cases. Uh, and, and frankly, you just have to end up learning about the industry that you're studying. I, I, would, say in, I would say in most larger private equity firms, uh, people... Uh, end up being organized by industry, so there is some uh, there is some pre-existing knowledge. So, you know, for example, if um, if uh, you know you start out your career um, and and start investing in you know consumer product businesses, you know there is muscle memory to continue doing consumer product deals, and so you know the twentieth consumer product deal that you see will be you know, far easier to evaluate than the first. Um, uh, in smaller firms, you are generalists sometimes. Um, and so, you know, you end up not knowing a lot about the industry you are evaluating and frankly having to, again, kind of rely on that imperfect information mm. uh, to form a conclusion. 
and from your experience, uh, what's the kind of pass-through rate from if you looked at 100, for example, if you, if you looked at 100 um, in the first phase and you did the first bid? and then Low, low single-digit percentages. That going to the next phase, into the execution, or all the way through? All the way through. All the way through, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's uh, I think we publicly stated it in the last one, which was I think we looked at 400 deals to get to one. So nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's a it's a low probability business, um, yeah. and and that can actually be very disheartening for people. Um, the likelihood of of doing a deal at any on any given company that you're evaluating, doing a deal or making an investment is is you know, low, I mean, next to zero, um, for a whole host of reasons, right? Uh, including transaction dynamics and simply, you know, your fundamental view of the business uh, may not meet seller expectations. Um, and so I think, I think, generally speaking, people in this industry are quite cynical. Uh, so we expect things to not work out. Mm. Um, which you know has interesting implications for when you are outside of work because you are also generally cynical about life. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I think that's that's actually one of the reasons. Um, I I know another buy side person who's on the public equity side, and the person who used to be in private equity, and uh, one of the reasons for detracting from that side was you know the frustration that individual had in terms of I worked on all these deals and. You, you believe this is the right price, but the seller is not going to take it because they want the higher price. Right. Um, and so the person just wanted to be able to just go to the free market and say, I'm going to wait for this price because I want to, or I'll buy it at this price um, because I'm willing to pay yeah up to this much. And so that was um, that's the benefit that person saw going to the public equity markets. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, like if your personality or the nature of how you work as a person doesn't succumb to being able to handle that being able to handle going through all of these due diligence works constantly and not being able to ex- like actually flow through on it because it's sometimes not in your control Correct. to do so yeah um, then yeah it might be tough to definitely thrive in that environment yeah I mean I think I think the key uh, the key thing if you if you go back to those big three buckets yeah. uh, that I talked about I mean I think I think from my perspective the key thing is you know are you still learning how how to do each of those buckets, mm-hmm. right? And, and, I mean, the, the, the outcome is the outcome. And, and you know, I'm, I don't want to keep saying this, but, like, you know, it's always a question of process versus outcome. If you enjoy the process, then the outcome, you know, I don't want to say is irrelevant, but almost doesn't matter. Um, uh, as long as you get enough reps on the process uh, and get better, then I think, I think from my perspective, that's, that's all that matters. I agree. I 100% agree. I actually commonly use the uh, analogy where um, it's a powerlifting analogy, so I'm just going to assume the audience members know what powerlifting is. And But in case you don't know, um, generally the way the competitions go, it's practically you get three tries to lift a certain weight, and you do it for one rep, and so you, you compete in the squat, bench press, and the deadlift. And if you're a guy who can only do 400 pounds on the squat, there's no way you're going to go into the competition and just put 500 pounds there and just hope to really do it. Your, your body's not trained for it. And so if I go there and I just hit all the personal best I've ever hit, then that's the result I got. But the result people see would be 
oh, how did you do in relation to all the other competitors? So I remember the last competition I did, I, I did relatively good. Well, um, I hit personal best in all my lifts, except for the bench press, and I ended up coming in first. But the guy who came in second, he missed like, two of his lifts. Um, and so he could have come first, but he didn't. And so I may have not gone first. I kind of got lucky that he wasn't right. able to hit what right. he would intend to do. And, but if you stick to the process, then exactly. I couldn't have controlled the outcome in that perspective. But that's, what only, that's the only thing that people would see. Right. That's, a, that's the right analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, in the execution phase, so when you go into the due diligence, that's the kind of horror story I hear about where you're just stuck with a data room all day. And when you're an associate, you're massaging a lot of data, you're looking through, um, just trying to make sense of all these numbers and building a lot of models. That's where the modeling work comes in. Is that, uh, would you say that that's kind of more 60, 70% of the work that goes into the execution phase? Yeah, I mean, I think I think at the end of the day, you're trying to figure out, you know, it, you're. It's funny. You're you're trying to find um, an objective answer to a subjective question, which is almost impossible. Uh, uh, what are you willing to pay for something is subjective, um, and and there is. Uh, I'm I'm actually let me say this a different way. I'm confident of one thing, which is what you model in a transaction will never be the outcome. Right, and so you're just really looking for for truth. You're trying to substantiate uh, a claim that management has made about how this business management or the the sell side bank has made about how this business is performing, um, and you are trying because of that information asymmetry, trying to prove that out and trying to underwrite um, with confidence. Uh, you know what is going to happen in the future for this business because that is effectively the job that you are being paid to do uh, by your investors or by your employer, depending on how you want to think about it, right? I mean, the, the job is, you know, narrow the, um, uh, the error bands around what is going to happen, you know, a month from now, a year from now, five years from now, effectively. Like, that is, that is what you want to understand. Uh, and so, yes, a lot of it is uh, quantitative in nature, but not all of it. I mean, a lot of it is also, you know, going back to the subjective piece, Talking with management, um, you know, thinking through uh, big picture strategy questions about about the company you're evaluating, um, as opposed to just you know, you know, looking at uh, customer concentration lists or cohort analyses or you know, figuring out what the IRR is on a deal or what next year's EBITDA or free cash flow is going to be. Um, or what the cap structure is. I mean, all those are important things, but they're not the only considerations. So I think the answer is yes. There's a lot of a lot of um, data uh, because I think people in this industry like to rely on that information. Um, but at the end of the day, I think I think the data helps make a decision. I, I continue to believe that um, uh, one people shouldn't rely too much on it because it'll never prove out to be 100% accurate. And, and two, you know, I am, a, I am a big believer that, that you know if something is a good business uh, or not. Um, harder to know if it's a good investment or not because that's a function of price. Um, but you know if it's a good business uh, uh, pretty quickly, actually. Uh, and so, so 
then the question is, what can you pay? And that becomes that becomes a more quantitative exercise. Right. Uh, but there's there's still a significant qualitative, uh, uh, yeah, qualitative component to it. Yeah, and I think uh, you've touched upon it, and it's actually an S, an article piece I'm currently working on writing. It's I I do agree that there is this uh, kind of I don't know what's the right word, but maybe pornification with data. Mm. Everyone is obsessed with being analytical, and that is their top skill. I'm a very analytical person. I love data, and like man, when I was in when I was in consulting, the amount of time for pitching big data, data analytics to clients, um, you just see it everywhere. The obsession with always like this now more of a reliance on the numbers. Mm. Where I do believe that human judgment is extremely valuable and data is a supporting tool. It's just, right. it's another form of evidence to consider. But I I personally do shy away from letting the data lead um, hmm. without the human judgment side where, because I, I do believe that, like, you might be thinking the data is leading you, but there I, I still do think psychologically there is an inherent bias for the person to interpret the data a different way based on what the person really truly believes in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's a, I think we're seeing a phase where I think it could be that a growing, we'll see a huge reliance on data. Maybe we'll go to the extremes like we always do. And then we might settle back down to uh, more of an equilibrium. Yeah. That's what I think. Um, but at, the, at this moment, data sells. <laughs> it, d- it does. Yeah. Uh, it definitely does. Yeah. 100%. And so for you personally, um, what what do you think is a uh, a dirty secret in private equity that people don't know about? Uh, it's funny. Um, I don't know if this is a dirty secret, but but this is something that I I uh, didn't appreciate until you know having having done it for a, a couple of years. It it seems actually very obvious on the surface. It's probably shame on me for not not even realizing it or not even thinking about it. Um, but I I uh, remember. At at uh, at school, um, in at Harvard, I, I did uh, a, a side project. I was very interested um, in doing a post mortem analysis of transactions, and so uh, in these private equity firms, oftentimes what what they will do is they will you know present uh, their investment thesis to uh, the investment committee or to the whole team, uh, and they will uh, in that in that document uh, or in that presentation they will have an opinion about you know the returns of an investment um, and so so what we did was we looked at a whole bunch of investment committee memos uh, from a whole bunch of different firms and we asked ourselves how close uh, was the outcome uh, to what people had underwrote and it, it was it was shocking I mean it was it was uh, not even remotely close um, uh, either good or bad right I, I think I think I think uh, people just could not estimate how an investment would do um, and so uh, well it's not that they couldn't inve- couldn't couldn't forecast how an investment would 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 do in terms of would it be good or bad it's that they could not actually with precision tell you you know the returns of a deal and so this goes back to our conversation around relying too much on on data but but there's a there's an interesting point there, which is I think you know there's almost this false precision of of how we think a um, a business will will perform, and and I think a lot of firms do this now in terms of you know 
kind of looking back as to how they thought a, 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 an investment would do. Um, but for me, I think I think it illustrated the the you know the most important thing, which was uh, the only thing that really determines investment outcome is price. Um, almost solely, like if you can buy a business today cheaply, uh, your probability of doing well is quite high. Um, uh, and and you have to realize that you know you can have some sense of what the company will do a year from now, um, but beyond that, it's just a complete crapshoot. Um, uh, so, uh, for me, that was that was uh, that was a, an interesting realization because I think there's this like internal deception that we can all forecast, you know, five years out. And the reason I keep saying five years is because as, as we talked about last time, you know, that's kind of a hold period for for private equity investors. Um, and so, you know, we always build five year models. That's just just that's just wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, I I totally agree. Um, like when I. Man, when I when I look at like so right now in my public portfolio, I hold companies I've held for now more than three years, and I look at the old models that I built, and it's unreal. Yeah, <laughs> the the amount of degree that I'm totally wrong in, um, like just from the full fundamental perspective, like the revenue numbers are off and everything. Yeah. And sure, like the price might have done better, then I'll go okay, that's good. Um, but the actual thesis behind it of yeah, right. I think it'll grow X per percent. Oh yeah, no, it's it's totally off, right? Um, and I think I think it's I I've heard that numerous times from the quant side, where mm-hmm. for public equity markets, yep, the eventually the I think a big mo- movement to a lot of people going to the quantitative side, especially in the value um, viewpoint from equities, is yeah, like price is what matters. So we'll just buy a lot of things that are cheap, and over time they'll be the ones that do better, mm-hmm. uh, and. I haven't heard too much about that from the private side, but I think that's actually also a very interesting uh, finding itself. Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously this there's this uh, there's this weird tension um, uh, on the private side, which is, you know, you raise a fund, you have to deploy it. Yeah. I mean, your your limited partners are paying you, you know, two percent a year on invested cash. If you think about raising a fund, in most cases. And uh, and this is a, a broad generalization, but you know LPs aren't happy if you're just taking that two percent every year without deploying it in something that is value accretive to them, and so there is this you know bias to action as opposed to inaction, um, uh, both from LPs but also from an economic perspective of the GP, right? Which is you kind of have to hit your carry threshold before you can get carried interest, which is a big way that people are compensated. And, and so um, I think what that what that ends up doing is, you know, in an environment like today where uh, I think it's very hard to find well-priced deals um, for many reasons, um, uh, one of which is, you know, what we talked about around market efficiency. Um, uh, it, it's hard to just keep saying no. Yeah. In fact, you, you actually can't. Um, you actually can't keep saying no, which actually, which is a very, I guess, another important realization. This is not a dirty secret, but this is an important takeaway that I, uh, you know, I kind of internalized along the way, which is, um, it's very easy to say no, right? It's actually the easier thing to say than yes. Um, and by no and yes, I mean, do I invest or not? Uh, and, and the problem is you can't have a successful career saying no 
uh, unfortunately, you are in the private equity uh, business, which means you have to make equity investments. And at some point, you, you know, you have to say, despite all of the identified risks and despite everything I know that is bad about this business, I'm willing to take this bet. And, you know, I'm cognizant that I don't really know with certainty where it's going to go, but based on my assessment of probabilities, I think this is going to be a good decision. Um, and you have to live with that. Uh, you know, on you, you make the bet on day zero and you don't know where it's going to be five years from now. And that's hard. That's a hard thing to do. And so I think the, you know, the, the best private equity investors have that ability uh, and have precision around those probabilities to feel comfortable. Right. And I, that actually reminds me of my time where it took me some time to realize after speaking to um, the portfolio managers and more where, you know, earlier on, even in the public markets, you see a lot of frothy valuations. So I'd always challenge them on why are we not holding more cash if we are having a hard time finding um, great investments? Like why are we, why would we invest in this one if it doesn't seem like it's that great? Like if it's not a hell yes, it's a no, isn't it? And the the portfolio manager at the time was telling me about how, you know, but you have to think of it as a business, and you have to think of your investors. Of why did they give you their money? Mm-hmm. They gave you their money to invest in companies and equity and that's our job like our job is to deploy capital and we're not the ones who choose how much cash our investors need to hold that's the investor's choice mm-hmm. the investor's probably holding cash that they feel happy with and everything that they want in equities they've given to us so Correct. we should do our job and invest everything in equities and I think that's where I I had to learn about removing myself as a personal you know um, investor to an institutional investor where that is something you have to switch your mind around um, and actually think about yourself as more of a steward of capital yourself right um, and so I think that that definitely is a, like actually, as you're talking about it it kind of hit me more mm-hmm. um, and helped me gain that realization, realization myself you also mentioned about how, like the, how the compensation uh, for the GPs requires you know you have to say yes too for you to get the carry and mm-hmm. the big payout I remember back when I was just starting out, um, we'd, we'd talk about how, uh, you know, maybe you should just go to finance, we'd be able to like, retire by 35 or something. From your experience, from what you've seen around, is that, uh, is that um, closer to reality or is it more fan fiction? Uh, I, well... I can answer this in a couple of different ways. I think I think there's no doubt that uh, the world of finance gives wonderful economic opportunities to young people that are almost you know unavailable anywhere else. Uh, and so, you know, for those people who can actually get access to those opportunities, I think you know it's very it's a, it's a it's because of a combination of hard work and luck, right? And so. Yes, I think you can you can earn a, a wonderful living in finance in general, private equity, you know, specifically as well as you know hedge funds. Um, uh, but but you know you you have to think about the risk return that you are taking. I mean I mean it isn't guaranteed, but by any stretch of the imagination, right? It is uh, it is a highly competitive industry, um, and I think people lose sight of that, right? And so uh, so yes, if you're good, you can make a lot of money. Full stop. But uh, around your question of retiring, I, I, that is less a question about how much money you make versus how much money you spend. Um, and I think, I think, from what I've seen, 
uh, and it isn't this isn't uh, true of everybody but it's certainly true of most you know there is this dynamic of luxuries becoming necessities um, uh, and and you know it, it's a strange you know it just it, it is the way it is the more money you have the more the more money you people tend to spend um, and so you know they become addicted to being able to actually spend that money and it makes it very hard to retire at 35 I think if you were you know living as a hermit uh, and and happy to live off of you know a couple tens of thousands of dollars a year yeah you could probably you could probably call it quits pretty early um, but I also don't think the personality type, more importantly, of, of folks in this industry are, are ones who just want to, you know, amass, a, you know, a small fortune and then just go away. I think I think most people who stay in this industry are competitive by nature. Um, and and whether that's manifests itself as, you know, kind of inherent self-competition to continue to get better or just outright competition in terms of wanting to do deals for as long as possible, um, I actually think in my limited experience, uh, I see people continuing to work for very long periods of time. Um, and obviously, you know, they have a lot of money, um, uh, but, but they seem to enjoy it. Um, so I, like, I mean, I, I don't know if I answered the question. There is, uh, there's certainly the opportunity to retire early if that's what you're trying to achieve. Um, but most people don't. Yeah. And I think, I think, that's actually um, the viewpoint that I agree with, where the goal should really be to find something that you will truly enjoy, that you don't right. want to retire, the tap that's into work thing that Buffett talks about. But I think, yeah, I think that's the, that's the shift that I had to go through, and I think a lot of young people have to go through too when they essentially want to go into finance. Mm -hmm. um, like a lot of my friends... To go I think I've told you this before, actually. Like, just to just to step back and think about the trade you're making. Like, there, there. Uh, I don't think. I again, it, it, it's all a question of the marginal utility of a dollar for, and that's a personal decision. But, but, I don't think there's enough money um, to keep you working until three a.m. for seven days straight in investment banking. Um, you know, it is it is beyond monetary compensation that it is something beyond monetary compensation that drives people to do that. Because if it was solely monetary compensation, uh, you you probably would just call it quits. Um, and so so I think I think that is why a lot of people you know very early on in their careers who go into banking you know with the hopes of you know glamour and gold stop because they just they. Uh, you know, they wonder about what they're doing with their lives. And, and so um, you have to actually have some component of enjoyment, although it's hard to enjoy working till 3 a.m. seven days in a row. But but really, you have to actually find meaning in what you're doing somewhere. No, I 100% I agree. And how are you on your journey for that? Yeah, I, uh, it goes back to, you know, the, the big why yeah. uh, that we talked about. Like, I... Um, I like what I do. Um, I can't. I don't know that there's any a, a, a more elegant way of saying it. I, I, um, I think what I've been able to find now is some semblance of balance where I get to, you know, do very interesting things at work, but I also get to do very interesting things outside of work. 
um, and explore things that I had wanted to explore previously, but never, never could. Um, you know, a good example is I'm reading more now than I ever did um, uh, because I have a little bit more time. Um, I, you know, you know that I, I like motorcycles and I like riding motorcycles and Toronto winter is not conducive to that, but um, uh, I'm doing that a lot more, right? Like I, three years, four years ago, got my license and learned how to do it, bought some bikes and, and have been enjoying that. I think I'm taking up a lot of hobbies that I hadn't done before. So for me, the, you know, going back to, you know, am I finding meaning and, and purpose? I think, I think, yeah, I, I am finding meaning and purpose in my, my day-to-day job, but I'm, I'm also finding meaning and purpose outside of it, which is, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. The holistic view. Right. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's definitely, uh, the, I think the, the, I don't want to say right again, but the approach that I agree with. I'm I'm trying. That's something I'm working on. Not trying to say something is right or wrong, but that is, that is rather my opinion. Right. In that, I, I realize I say that a lot when I'm talking to my girlfriend, just because of my innate authoritative nature of everything. I, I have some of that in me deep down as well. <laughs> Don't worry. And um, so, that kind of hitting around like the closing marks of the chat today. Um, the question I'd like to ask you is. What's a what's a belief that you have that you think goes against conventional wisdom in regards to career, life? Oof. I don't know. I've had a pretty conventional career. <laughs> well, it looks linear. Yeah, it does look linear. Yeah, um, but we know it wasn't linear. No, no, we, we, we know it wasn't. Um, geez, what would I say? I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't even know what conventional wisdom would be. Ah. Um, uh, I, I think substance over style is probably important. Um, that's a trite way of saying, you know, I think, I think there is, uh, there is value, um, there is value to trying to not come off as here but like there is there is just inherent value in a finding something you like and trying to be the best at it irrespective of what people think um, and like I said before I think a lot of my uh, I think conventional wisdom is doing you know if I think about what conventional wisdom actually means it is you know doing what a lot of people think you should be doing uh, hence it's conventional wisdom and I, and I, you know I, I do think my career for a significant component of it had been driven by, you know, doing what people thought I should do. And, and we had this conversation last time. And so, so you know, I, I, I do think going against that grain, if you're passionate about something, it doesn't really matter. Just go and go and find a way to get it done. Excellent. Great. Thanks for coming on again, Greg. I really Always enjoyed fun. your chat. All right. Have a good one. See you, Dan. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com newsletter. 
you can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way and included in the newsletter are my book reviews i write my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems as well as seven things i learned throughout the week on being healthy wealthy and wise Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music tiny people on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.